Good morning. And let's begin with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we ask that you'll join us this morning as we study, that we can draw closer to you, keep you as the focus of our attention as we deal with the questions that are ever liable to rise and help us to fulfill your purpose for our lives. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And Merry Christmas. Christmas. (laughs) It's good to be back in town this weekend, and I'll be here again next weekend during the holidays. We are starting a new study guide, Managing for the Master Till He Comes, and we're doing Lesson 1, Part of God's Family. And the memory text is 1 John 3, 1, which reads, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. And if you thought, what does it mean to be a child of God? Have you heard some pastors ask if only your, your obedient children are considered your children? Or even if you have an unruly, disobedient child, do you still consider them your child? And then a pastor might go on to say, so are the wicked considered children of God as the righteous, just their disobedient, unruly children, but they're still all children. Have you heard this, this line of questioning? Some might even point to the genealogy of Christ in Luke, which finishes with the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God, and suggests that because we're all descended from Adam, and Adam is the son of God, then we're all children of God through Adam. And not make a distinction. But as you consider that, think what Jesus said in John 8, 44. This is what Jesus said in John 8, 44, talking to the Jewish people. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father lies. So when the Bible speaks about being part of the family of God, Are they speaking about something other than being part of the human family? Or does being part of the human family make you part of the family of God? Well, consider these verses as you consider this question, what does it mean to be a child of God? This is John 1, 12 to 13. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Seems like it's making a distinction. Simply being part of the human family, born of the natural genetics, does not make you part of the family of God. Seems like that's what it's saying. So what does it mean to be born of God? In order to be part of the family of God, it seems like we must be born of God. Well, consider these passages, Galatians 3.26. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Or Romans 8.14-17. through 17. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again, uh, again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children, Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. How does one become a part of Satan's family? And how does one become part of God's family? Well, listen to, consider this, 1 John 3, 8 through 10. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. I'm going to pause right there. 
When you hear that test, to destroy the devil's work, what has the devil been working to do? Oh, certainly, that's, that, his method is to spread lies, but he spread lies to achieve something. He's got a goal when he spreads lies. What's he going to achieve by spreading lies? So does Satan actually want to live on an earth devoid of all life? No. no, no. Which is described as the thousand years, isn't it? Yeah, yeah that would be a prison to him. So he actually doesn't want to kill all life. Uh, one of the founders of the Adventist church said that Satan has labored, that's another word for work, to destroy the devil's work, has labored to efface the image of God in man and to put Satan's image where God should be. He wants to be enthroned in hearts and minds of people as the one adored, admired, worshipped, whom we become like. So, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The devil's been working to destroy the image of God and man and put Satan's image where God should be. Think about what this means in the context of being someone's child. What does it mean to be a child of someone? Don't children resemble their parents? Isn't God make it that way? both physiologically, genetically. Uh, we, we have features that our parents gave us biologically. But if we're raised by our parents, we speak the same language as them. We often grow up with the same values and methods of relating and belief systems. Uh, we become very much like our parents. We can carry forward the image of our parents, both positive and negative. Isn't that true? an image bearer to our parents. Does this have any bearing on what it means to be part of God or Satan's family? Would those who carry within themselves the attributes, characteristics, methods, principles of God, his law written on the heart and mind, for instance, resembling God, therefore being restored to the image of God, be the ones considered children of God? Whereas those who reject the law of God, the truth of God, the character of God, and instead internalize the principles of God's enemy and become a image bearer of Satan. Well, what Jesus said, you're of your father, the devil. He's a murderer from the beginning. You're trying to murder me. You look like him in character. You practice his methods. Do you see? So continue on with, with 1 John. No one who is born of God. Now, here's the thing. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Get, get ready to get uncomfortable now. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Because God's seed, think what it means in the context of being of creation and procreation and being coming like someone, God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. You want to know who they are? He's going to tell you right here. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Does this verse make you uncomfortable? No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. That's not my words. Do we believe that via the Holy Spirit we are reborn, that we receive new hearts and right spirits, that the seed of God, the code, the law is planted within us. 
we receive the very life of God. It is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We become partakers of the divine nature, and it works a change in us. We get new motives, desires, attitudes, understandings, perspectives, insights, and practices change. We live differently. We grow. We develop. We mature. We become more like Jesus. Or do we instead believe that we have a legal adjustment in a book and have adoption papers filed in a heavenly court system and we are legally declared to be part of the family of God while we go on living sinful lives and practicing the methods of Satan? Which idea are you more comfortable with? I'm going to give you two. Which one are you more comfortable with? Those born of God will go on sinning until Jesus comes. Those born of God will not go on sinning. One of those is from the Bible. One of those is not from the Bible. Which one are you more comfortable with? The second one. That those born of God will not go on sinning? Or those that, go, that born of God will go on sinning until Jesus comes? Which is the common view taught in Christianity? We'll continue sinning. Yes. The common view is we are born of God. It's a legal adjustment, not a setting of hearts and minds right to live victoriously. Just go back. What law lens are you looking through the, the Bible through? What is the essence or root of sin? Selfishness. I like that. Yep. Mm-hmm. Which is opposite of? Love is the essence of sin, tasks and deeds, or attitudes of heart? Jesus said, you say if you commit adultery, bad act or deed, you commit sin. I say if you lust in your heart. Jesus said, uh, he said to him, you say if you commit a murder, bad act, you commit sin. I say if you hate in your heart. The, the Bible is very clear. All the bad deeds are manifestations of corruption in the heart. So bad deeds are not inconsequential. We don't diminish the destructiveness of bad deeds, but the bad deeds come from the abundance of the heart. And that's where the sin resides, in the, in the heart. So the root of sin is, the, is an attitude of distrust and disloyalty to God. We don't trust him. And another word for trust is faith. We don't have faith in him. We don't have confidence in him. We have to watch out for self. We have to angle to our own ends to make sure we get what we think we, we deserve. The essence of sin, distrust and disloyalty to God. Those born into the family of God may be tempted by fear and selfishness. They may have struggles in personal performance, meaning tasks. They may make errors in judgment, like Peter, when he didn't associate with the uncircumcised fellows, made an error in judgment but they do not break trust with God. They remain humble. They have hearts that love truth and are willing to be corrected. They love God and love others. They do not love their lives so much as to shrink from death, as it says in Revelation 12, 11. Thus they develop, they advance, they grow in godliness, just like children grow. And that growth is evidence that they are children of God. So how do we know who's part of the family of God or the family of Satan? Well, John, I'll read the scripture again. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is, a is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. We are reborn to, to love, to 
to love God and to love others. If you've done it under the least of these, you have done it unto me. That's when he separates the sheep from the goats. It isn't as you've kept the right day of worship. It's as you've done it under the least of these. The Jews who crucified Christ kept the right day of worship. First sentence in the, in the study guide on Sabbath lesson, it says, as Christians, an amazing feature about our relationship with God is that he trusts us to manage his affairs on this earth. Why does God do this? What is the purpose or goal in God putting his affairs into our hands? He wants us to develop unselfish spirit. Thank you very much. Well said, all of you. Well said. There's a design law involved here. It's a law of exertion. Growth, development, requires exercise, requires application. Development of character requires choice. You have to choose which principles you apply in practice and how you treat others. Will you use the principles of fear and selfishness to lie, connive, exploit, control, dominate, mandate? to make yourself feel safe. We'll use the principles of truth, love, and freedom. Every person be fully persuaded in their own mind, Romans 14, 5. The methods you apply to yourself and how you treat others is part of how we grow in godliness, yes? And God wants our growth. He wants our development. He wants our understanding. He does not want well-trained dogs. That's not what he wants. John 15, 15, he wants understanding friends who actually have agreed God's ways are the best. He wants you to do what God, God wants us to do what he says, not because simply he said it, but because having said it, we've thought it, we've looked at it, we've evaluated it, and we agree. Yeah, that, there's no better way. Jesus taught this principle in the parable of the talents. Those who invested their talents, law of exertion, if you want something to get stronger, you must exercise it, because if you don't use it, you lose it. That's right. So if you invest your talents, apply them, you get more. If you don't apply them, you bury them, you lose what you have. That's how reality works. This is not some arbitrary divine intervention, miraculously making somebody get more or taking away. It's what we reap because we sow. We reap what we sow. If we want to have greater capacity for love, then we actually have to love others. If you want greater faith in God, then you actually have to have and exercise faith in God. If you don't exercise it, it doesn't grow. How do you do that? How do you exercise faith in God? By putting things in your real life into his hands, making a decision that you can't see the certain outcome on, but you're certain that God wants you to take that action because it's right. It's in keeping with his methods and design laws. So you will, and there's a thousand different things. We do this every day. You won't lie about this to make sure somebody doesn't get mad at you. You'll speak the truth and you'll trust God with how things turn out. You won't, uh, you won't embezzle. You won't cheat uh, because you're behind on your mortgage. Uh, you won't uh, cheat on your tithe because you're behind on your mortgage. Uh, You will trust God because you're going to do right in governance of self in any given decision, and you're going to trust God with how things turn out. The just or the right do in governance of self what they understand is right, and they trust God with how it turns out, and their faith strengthens because ultimately it turns out well in the end. But it may go through periods of difficulty, and then you look back on it and you go, wow, I wouldn't have chosen a different path if I could because that really ultimately was the best path in the end. Yes? One of the biggest problems we have as human beings is we try to predict the future. Yep. 
That's the key in all pagan religions, and we don't predict the future. We should act, do what is right, and leave the future to God. Yep. Now, yeah. Not, not predict the future. Uh, we shouldn't do that. But we should understand if God has called us to an action where that path is leading. He's called, he called Jonah to go to Nineveh. Okay? So that was, he's going to get there in the future. So there's a certain aspect, but he's not predicting. He's fulfilling. Yeah. Yes. The developing an understanding of design law and following design law is the most predictable future that we can have on Earth. That's right. Life becomes very predictable. Or ironclad, perfectly predictable. So when Jesus predicted, and he predicted that he was going to go to Jerusalem, be crucified, die, rise on the third day. He said that several times recorded in Scripture. Yet Ellen White writes, he could not see through the portals of the tomb. He, he knew the scripture. But he could not see through the... So he was not predicting that because of a divine revelation of the future. He wasn't like, crystal ball forecasting the future. Okay? He knew what the scripture told, but he also understood design law. And the reason death comes, death comes because sin severs the connection with God who's the source of life and breaks the actual protocols upon which God built life to operate. And the only result is death. He knew that he was going to destroy sin and restore God's law back into the humanity he took upon himself, thus restoring the connection with life. So he predicted through understanding the reality of God's universe and how God's kingdom works that he would fulfill his mission. And in fulfilling his mission, the inevitable, uh, the predictable outcome is life, not death. Because he, 1 Timothy, Timothy, excuse me, 2 Timothy 1, he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. He was destroying the actual cause of death and he knew he was going to and he was going to succeed. And so doing... The only outcome from that was a resurrection to life. So it was very predictable because he understood the law of life, which is the law of God, which life comes from God. It was restored perfectly into his humanity. That's what he did for us. Yeah. So, but it's not crystal ball reading, which is what the wicked do. They want to, and this is what all forms of spiritualism seek to do. Find out some secret mystical future thing that we don't know. You're exactly right. Why would yes. you say he would do it in three days? Um, that's what I was going to didn't you say at one point that they had a uh, custom that after three days your body would start rotting and they knew he was dead at that point? That's why he had to wait for the three days. No, that was the resurrection of Lazarus. They had a mythology and that's why he waited for that. So Christ actually wasn't in the tomb for 72 hours as far as we can tell. He died on a Friday evening before sunset. He was in the tomb over the Sabbath. He rose early on Sunday morning. So, yeah, so he wasn't in the tomb 72 hours. Um, but the Jewish calendar, the, he was, any portion of the day is considered. So he was in the tomb on Friday, he was in the tomb on Saturday, he was in the tomb on Sunday. So three days he was in the tomb, but not 72 hours in the tomb. It wasn't a time measurement. It was the days that were, that were touched by his being in the tomb. And why did he predict three? Because I, I think that the way God had built the Sabbath as a gift for us, that the conflict, the great controversy which began in heaven uh, God, when he created this planet, gave us the gift of the Sabbath. After he gave evidence during creation week, God rested for the consideration of what had been revealed, stopped using power, stepped back, created a space that comes every week for the freedom of his creatures to think and choose. And then in the process of the plan of redemption, the, at the achievement, it is finished. Work of creation, it is finished. He rests. It is finished. 
He rests in the tomb again to give the entire universe time to consider what he just accomplished in the plan of redemption. And that's what was the purpose of resting over the Sabbath, I think. And then he rises very quickly in the first day to get on with the rest of the mission is the application of what he achieved through his work as our uh, heavenly high priest. All right, I'm going to jump ahead. To, let's go to Sunday's lesson. Um, Ask us to read Ephesians 3, 14 and 15, and it says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and earth derives its name. What does it mean that God is called our Father? That Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, who art in heaven. When you think of God as Father, does it bring comfort, peace, security, confidence? Or does it bring fear, doubt, and a desire for an intercessor? Does our concept of what a father is and how fathers treat their children have any bearing on how we feel and relate towards God as our father? Yes. Yes. In the Lord's Prayer, when he says in the Greek, Father of us, hallowed be thy name. In in Scripture, God's name is God's law. So the, the... Calling on God as Father is, is calling on God's character and law as shared ideals, that we are His children because we are people of the covenant. His law, His name, His character is ours because He is our Father. That's, so the, the Lord's Prayer starts with the affirmation of His law and kingdom, which is His name. I am who I am, my character, my law. Psalms 119.55, God's name is God's law. Yet God still uses in this context, frequently through Scripture, the concept of Father. And the question that, that I want, to, want you to consider, and I agree with you about the law, I agree with you about his character, but the question I want you to consider when we think of Father, we pray our Father, when we, says, we call out Abba, Father, Daddy, okay? Um, does God require us to approach him as a Father figure? Anybody read the book, The Shack? And in the book, The Shack, the author, Paul, Paul Young, describes a man's encounter with God. And this man, uh, God presents himself to this man as a, as a woman. Some people are very upset by this, but in the context of the story, the man was raised by an alcoholic, abusive father, and he had a lot of anger and resentment issues and distrust issues. Fathers abuse, fathers are untrustworthy, fathers exploit, fathers take advantage. I have in my practice um, uh, patients who have been molested by their fathers, and, and it makes it very hard for them to pray, my father in heaven. Okay, They have issues there that be worked through. So in the book, God approaches him as a woman, so he can sidestep all of his anger toward his own dad and help get into his heart so he can help heal all that anger and resentment and bitterness that he has from the woundedness that he had. Now, as you think about that story, do you think God would be humble enough to approach a person struggling like that in the form of a woman, or would he insist that that person acknowledge him in the masculine? No. Well, you know, the Bible says that Jesus humbled himself all the way to the cross in, in, in Philippians, we have examples of God humbling himself, calling out to Adam behind the, the bush, or um, Jesus veiling his own heavenly glory to come to earth. Or Second Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty 
we might become rich. I think God has demonstrated his willingness to humble himself for the saving. Well, parent wouldn't humble themselves if it meant saving their child. So what do you think about the idea of God presenting himself as female, as a woman? Is this biblical? Well, first question, before we even get to the biblical evidence, who created Adam and Eve? And is Adam singular male individual what it means to be fully human? Or in fact, it required, is God's design, Adam and Eve together made up a unified human. The two shall be one. And so if you think that through, Adam, the male, reveals elements or attributes of God made in the image of God. Was Eve also made in God's image or only in the image of Adam, which sometimes is argued? Or does she an image bearer of God too? Can women bear the image of God or only the image of of a man? God. What do you all think? Did God purposely make male and female in Eden, or was it by happenstance? Oh, does God have a gender? So we're talking about humans right now, and the lesson that God gave that let us make man in our image, and he made them male and female, and so the question is, does male and female both reveal aspects of God? Yes. Both. And so... so You won't have the fullness of God in any human being revealed, but there are elements of God's character and his attributes that he has chosen to communicate to us through masculinity and maleness, but also through femininity and femaleness. Let's give some Bible text now. Matthew 23, 37. This is probably the most famous, the one that most people think of when they think about uh, an image of God as, as, as something female. And that's Jesus saying, crying over Jerusalem, uh, how he would like to take uh, 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 the, the, the uh, he would like to be a hen and call the chicks under his wings, Matthew 23, 37. Um, and then Deuteronomy 32, 18, though. Let's look at some of these others. You deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave birth to you. They've had it all that time. So, so we have both male and female expressed in this one text. Can a mother forget the baby of her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hand, Isaiah 49, 15, and 16. Or Isaiah 66, 13. As a mother comforts her child, so I comfort you. Or Hosea 11, 3 through 4. Yet I was... Now, now think this one through. I was the one who taught Israel to walk. I took my people up in my arms, but they did not acknowledge that I took care of them. I drew them to me with affection and love. I picked them up and held them to my cheek. I bent down to them and fed them. In the the ancient culture, which parent would do all these roles here? This is mother. This is not father doing this. Hosea 13.8, like a bear robbed of her cubs, I will attack and rip them open, talking about those who are attacking Israel. God speaking there. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, I spread, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on, on its pinions. Deuteronomy 31.11, God's liking himself to the, to the mother eagle. For a long time I have kept silent, 
I have been quiet and held myself back. But now, like a woman in childbirth, I cry out. I gasp and pant, Isaiah 42, 14. There's one more I'm going to share with you. There's one more I'm going to share with you. It's a parable from Jesus. And as I share this parable, I want you to note that Jesus gave this parable in the middle of a set of three. The first is the story of the lost sheep, where the shepherd goes out to find the lost sheep. The last is the story of the lost son who comes home to his father. And this story is right between the two. Or suppose a woman had 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully till she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, in the parable of the lost sheep, who is represented by the shepherd who finds the lost sheep? Jesus. Jesus. In the parable of the lost son, who's represented by the father who returns, uh, the son returns to? So who is the woman in this parable that's searching for the lost coin? This is God. Did you know that the Bible represents God as a woman or with various feminine attributes in so many places? Did you know that? So if a person has a serious problem, like in the book The Shack, with God in the father role, wouldn't it be reasonable that God would approach him in the mother role? Do you think there are aspects of of the Godhead we as Christians have not fully appreciated because we are so male-centered in our presentation of God? And has Satan exploited this in society today by advancing an ungodly, corrosive philosophy under the guise of promoting something good for women? In other words, today's modern feminist movement. Understand, the modern feminist movement today is not about godly equality of men and women. It's not what it's about. It's about destroying the image of God in people. And the the modern feminist movement is actually about destroying godly masculinity under the guise of elevating godly femininity, or excuse me, femininity, which is not godly as they decide to elevate it in the worldly standards of of dog eat dog. And, And if you think that I'm wrong about this modern feminist movement not actually advancing the cause of women, just see which side they're on when it comes to the transgendered, masculine, transgendered biological males claiming they're women and going out and competing for women's sports and women's scholarships. Which side is the modern feminist movement on? The side of biological women? No. They don't care about women. They don't care about elevating women. They don't care about equality for women. It's not a godly movement. Monday's title for the lesson... That's exactly right. Somebody said it's about destroying families. That's the real goal. It's corrosive. The title for the lesson is God is the owner of everything. The Bible basis for this, Psalms 24, 1 and 2, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Or Colossians 1, 16 through 70, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, for the thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So the idea that God is the creator, the builder, and the sustainer. 
what role do we play if God owns everything in God's design, in God's system, in God's economy? What role do we play? Stewards. Thank you, stewards. Yes, that's a great word for agents, representatives, ambassadors, stewards, delegates, people who, who act in the best interest of the true owner. Adam, in Eden, was a steward of the planet Earth, given the whole planet to govern as Christ would govern. That was his responsibility. Adam and Eve together were equal and jointly were to govern this planet in love. That was the design. We are to live as God's friends and representatives today using the resources God has placed in our hands for the advancement of his kingdom. Yes or no? Yes. Yes. When Adam was created, he was brilliant. When when we are born, we are not. So look at the knowledge he had as a created being. He could name the animals. How did he learn how did he learn that? How do you know that? I find that very interesting. So so how did he name the animals? Uh, I think because he had capacity for reason and study and evaluation, and God brought the animals before him, and he evaluated them, their abilities, their different attributes, and, and he decided what name would fit them best based on the qualities, abilities, characteristics that they had. Uh, again, uh, God giving him that privilege, but he had abilities to be able to process all that. It also required he study and think. I don't, think he had a, I don't think he had a catalog already, uh, a, a lexicon already downloaded into his brain, and God said, uh, like we do to our kids, we pull out the little picture book and say, now what is that? Well, that's a cat. <laughs> he didn't have a lexicon in his brain. Uh, God wanted him to actually come up with a name for them. But he did have language already established. But he had language. That's right. Mm-hmm. But he also had brilliance. Brilliance, capacity for reason, study. Yes, and he loved to study the things of nature. So God owns everything. We're his agents. Now, the question is, and so in God's economy, God is the source of all. He distributes it out through his intelligent beings, whether that is life itself, love, truth, uh, compassion. All the good blessings come from God, and we receive that. It flows out to us as we carry out his purposes, and ultimately flows back to God in adoration and praise and never-ending circle of giving that life is built upon. Now, in the world today, are there competing economies or systems or philosophies that, uh, that, that compete with this idea that God is the owner of everything? The biblical idea, God owns it all, we're his stewards. That's the biblical model, yes or no? Yes. Okay. Is there competing ideas in the world? Yeah, you're a little nothing and be happy. What are the two big competing ideas? You actually alluded to one right there, and we're going to get to it. Two big competing ideas. Take care of number one. Capitalism and Marxism. Those are the two big competing ideas. Uh, Understand, neither one of these represents God's kingdom. Satan always tries to create conflict by setting up two uh, uh, false systems to substitute God's truth that people will choose one and fight over, and it doesn't matter which side they're on, they're still on his This is one of them. The foundation of all human economics is the idea of ownership, of buying and selling. Nothing's free in this life. We must pay for it. And in this world, we are taught that safety and security is found in owning things. The more we own, the safer we feel. This is exactly the opposite of how God's economy works upon free giving. Matthew 10, 8, freely you have received, freely give. Or... 
Proverbs 11, 24 and 25. Give freely and become more wealthy. Be stingy and lose everything. The generous will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. The law of love, the law of giving that God's economy works upon. The Bible describes God's economy as this system of free giving, but in the world, the world is driven by fear and selfishness. This makes no sense. In the world, the more you give, the less you have. And therefore, if you give stuff away, you become poor. And so you should hoard and you should take. The more you take, the more you store up, the more you have. It's the opposite of God's kingdom. Satan hates the kingdom of God and he hates people practicing it. And so he has these two competing systems, capitalism and socialism, also known as Marxism. Capitalism is a system in which people, individuals, can own property in this system of personal buying and selling. Its primary motivation is the accumulation of wealth. Businesses and business owners in a capitalist societies have as their number one priority returning income to their shareholders, making money for their business. That's their number one priority. The health and welfare of the populace is not number one. They will hurt people if they can get away with it to make money. Just look at big pharma in the last few years. Seriously, just look at that. It's very clear. And this is why without government regulation, capitalism always ends up hurting people. Polluting, exploiting child labor, all kinds of things. If it's just about wealth and making money, it becomes greed and self-driven and people become expend, expendable. For the, for, and, and what happens is society devolves into the super wealthy and everybody else who serves the super wealthy. So there's a competing one. And again, in the capitalistic, people can own. You can own. You're the owner. Marxism identifies the principle of ownership of property as evil. But it proposes a solution that creates greater corruption and more vile outcome than capitalism. The Marxist solution is that no one can own anything. All property is owned by the state. Marxism which is supposed to solve the problem of worldly selfishness and ownership by restricting property and ownership to the state, creates a system in which the state becomes supreme over everything, including the people. The state replaces God as the true owner, and people no longer answer to God as his stewards, but they answer to the state. And this inevitably results in a functional outcome that most people who support socialism are blind to, and that outcome, in all socialist societies, wherever it's been put into practice, the state becomes more valuable than the people, and the people functionally become no different than any other commodity owned by the state. And as long as you bring value to the state, the state will support you. But if you become a drain on the state, then you're expendable. And in every socialist society, the state ends up killing its people. Everywhere it's been put into place. Which is why Marxism and socialism is even a grosser perversion than capitalism. But again, the two systems are not gods, and Satan plays them off each other to cause society to divide and fragment. God's economy is the kingdom of love and free giving, the gospel of grace, the biblical metaphors of payment in the Bible are not economic or legal, They are actual what reality requires. If you had a child who was dying of renal failure and you freely gave a kidney to your child, 
We could say you paid a high price to save your child. It was not a legal price. It was not a financial price. It was the price that their condition required to save them. And so God paid an infinite price for our salvation. But it wasn't legal, and it wasn't economic. It was actual. It was what was nece- our, our, our condition required in order to remedy the sin condition. He knew no sin, became sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. So, see, conflicts in the world today are based on these two economic models. Do you see it? You see the two economic models battling in the world. But can you recognize the intrusion of the socialist model when it doesn't use money? Yes. Mm-hmm. See, classic Marxism divided society of those who were wealthy and had property and wealth and those who didn't, the workers from the owners. This is how classic Marxism divided society along economic lines. And classic Marxism consistently failed to make any inroads into the West. Marxist philosophers really wondered about this. Why was it not making inroads into the West? And multiple scholarly Marxist philosophers finally realized the reason it was not making inroads into the West was because of Protestant Christianity. And what I just shared with you, in Protestant Christianity, God is the owner. And it is anathema to a committed Protestant Christian to consider the state is an owner and replacing God. And so as long as people have a, a belief and a love for God and recognize him as their true owner and we are stewards, we cannot actually align ourselves with systems that put the state in the place of God. And so Marxist philosophers realized that they could not make inroads into the West by advancing economic differences. So they came up with a new philosophy for these same principles called critical theory. And critical theory replaces economic differences with so-called power differences. Those in the power group and those out of the power group. And, And you're in the power group not based on your own personal power, but based on your identity in the group. And critical the- traditional theories would seek to understand why certain things happen in societies and, and understand the reasons for those things. That's traditional study of, of anthropology and sociology and so forth. Simply understanding why things are the way they are. Critical theory is not simply seeking to understand, but actively seeking to, and this comes from one of the fathers of critical theory, seeking uh, in, uh, to understand society in order to criticize it ruthlessly to subvert, dismantle, disrupt, and overthrow the prevailing social order. That is the goal of critical theories. Who's the author, if you have it? That's a Marxist named Horkheimer. Horkheimer. Okay? And he was quoting from Marx with that particular statement. Critical theory shifts the focus away from actual economic power to oppressor and oppressed. Oppressors are the powerful, the oppressed are the disempowered. But it actually is not about personal power. Understand, the object of the uh, power, um, of individual power or powers is not relevant, the objective. So, for instance, let me give you an example. 
Oh, by the way, just to name some of the critical theories that are being taught in most of the universities around, around the United States now, intersectional feminism, critical sexual studies, uh, post-colonial studies, indigenous studies, fat studies, and critical race theory. And in critical theory, it's taught that, those, that, taught that these and other identified oppressed groups must take power from the oppressors in order for there to be equity and fairness. But because the inequities are presumed to be inherent in the institutions built by the oppressors, the only way for there to be equity is to destroy the institutions built by the oppressors. For instance, in critical, let me show you, here's an instance. Uh, in critical sexual studies, the oppressed are the non-binary people, the LGBTQ and trans individuals. Um, they're, the, they're, the, they're the oppressed, and the, uh, the binary hit traditional um, Christian values of male-female relationships in a monogamous marriage. They're oppressors. So in critical theory, uh, if you are a member a person who actually believes in monogamous heterosexual marriage, you're automatically an oppressor. It doesn't matter if you march with LGBTQ people. It doesn't matter if you want equality. Equality in the, uh, in the critical sexual studies is not about equal right under the law to marry somebody of your choice. No, the, what they want is they actually want to destroy traditional Protestant values on male-female relationships heterosexual marriage, what it means to be male and female. That, that, that is the goal of the critical studies because all of that is inherently oppressive. If you were to simply talk about the blessing God has given you in your 50-year marriage to your spouse, that is an aggressive statement against the LGBT people and it is oppressive and it is part of the, um, the hierarchy of abuse that must be destroyed. Recently, I think it was in Norway, uh, somebody was speaking out against this and actually got sentenced to prison for a hate speech. Yep. Yep. So, so speaking like what I'm speaking right now in certain countries, you go to prison for it right now. Canada. So according to critical sexual studies, a gay actor or athlete, millionaire, with a private jet, $20 million home, chauffeur, personal chef, personal trainer, and exclusive access to the most elite elements of society is still oppressed, whereas a heterosexual single mother living in poverty on food stamps is an oppressor. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's exactly right. She's part of a system that oppresses because she identifies as heterosexual. The goal of the so-called equity uh, along gender lines is in, in the sexual um, critical uh, theory is to change the ideology of society regarding human sexuality, male and female, etc. The same philosophy uh, and methodology is being used in all critical studies, including critical race theory. In critical race theory, a nuclear family with a father and mother holding power over their children appropriate godly power of discipline over their children is deemed racist and whiteism. As parents have pow- uh, having power are oppressive and children are understood to be oppressed. So in critical race theory, the solution is for the children to be raised by the community or the state, which is exactly the philosophy of Marxism, by extension communism. This explains why, understanding this, you can now see what you're seeing in the news. Explains why in the United States today, wherever critical race theory is advanced, school officials believe it is their right and mandate to teach children various ideas such as gender fluidity that typically violates the values, morals, beliefs, and educational goals of the parents. These critical race theory school officials intentionally exclude parents because the, the philosophy views traditional two-parent homes as racist and part of the institutions of society that need to be subverted and overthrown. 
This explains why, in some districts, school officials advance gender-affirming care, hormone therapy, and even gender reassignment surgery on minors without parental involvement. Traditional parenting is, by critical race theory standards, racist in a form of whiteism, and therefore must be opposed. Understand what we're dealing with here. If, as a parent, you oppose that, our attorney general will call you a domestic terrorist. Yeah, that's true, too. So what's actually being opposed here, and I want people to be very clear here, we are not in a race war in this country. Not yet. Race, no, it's, it's not a race war. This is a pretext. The focus is on race... To, to gender up both anger in, in, in people who may be tr- mistreated for their race, real stories of racism that occurs. There's no question. I'm not suggesting there's not such a thing as racism. But critical race theory is not actually about racism. We are not in a race war in this country. We're in a cultural war. And the goal of all the critical theories, and I've read, read a bunch of them, is the destruction of Protestant Christian values in this country. That, that is the goal. So this is a cultural war to destroy the belief in God. And understanding all the critical studies, all of the proponents of the critical studies come from godless evolutionary worldview. That's where they come from. And the reason they use things like race theory is because they want to, in people of goodwill, engender the emotion of empathy and compassion and sympathy so that you will inadvertently support the very people, processes, and, and groups that are going to destroy the values that you hold. And if you don't support it, you'll be called a racist. And you don't want to be a bigot or a racist or a sexist so that you will then support it. It's a big con job. The solution, of course, to all racism is Jesus Christ. When you love God, and we read in our text today, and love others... As yourself, you treat everybody equally. You love everybody. You love your brother. You love your neighbor. Okay? So this is not a political fight. I want you to understand this. It's not about politics. This is a culture war. It's a war for hearts and minds. Satan is activating his agencies on earth to infect people with a fraudulent value system. I know I'm not going to get through everything in my notes, so I'm going to try to get to some more critical, critical things. So how do we distinguish between critical theory and critical thinking or critical discernment? I mean, some... Yeah, so that's also how they use language. In the whole critical theories, they use language fraudulently. They they take words and they will use them, uh, and you will think they mean one thing, they actually mean something else, okay? They do not want... So critical reasoning typically means stepping back, looking at the pros, cons, uh, weighing things out, cause to effect, applying design laws or principles to them, see the outcomes, measure the outcomes, make intelligent decisions about what actually is best. That is not what it means. Critical theory means to criticize, not to critically reason. It means to criticize the, st- the, the, the social norms, particularly coming out of, of Protestant Christianity. I read, it's in one of my blogs, you want to find this? Go to our website, and you can type in Smithsonian. Because I, I, in one of my blogs uh, about this, I uh, reproduced an entire document put out by the, um, uh, the Smithsonian Institute on African American Studies. Uh, and this entire document defined what they termed whiteism in this country. And what they termed whiteism, which if you practice as racism, is a two-parent home, hard work, work ethic, scientific method, um, uh, and all, all of these things that actually are the principles 
of design law that God created humans to thrive and function upon. And if you practice those principles, then you're considered a racist. So a black African-American man who believes in uh, Jesus Christ, uh, believes in uh, heterosexual marriage, marries his wife, believes it's his responsibility to uh, work and provide for his family and stay faithful at home, uh, would be considered practicing whiteism. And he would not be considered authentically black. They're told they're acting white. They're told they're acting white, and they're practicing whiteism, okay? This, this is this. So understand, it actually has nothing to do with, with your race. It has nothing to do with skin color. This whole thing is an attack on the principles of Protestant Christianity. And the goal, I want you to understand, the goal is to break down the social order in this country, to break down the fabric of society so that people become uh, life becomes less predictable. You become more fearful. There's more chaos in society. You have more crime. You have more exploitation. You have the defragmentation of families. You have more poverty. You have more hunger. And, and the goal of all that is to get people to say, we have no idea how to figure out what to do. It's all so confusing. It's all so overwhelming. Somebody please come restore order and make us feel safe. We need our safe space. And then the dictators come in. The socialists come in. And you get your communist China and you you get your North Korea with somebody who will give a sense of a semblance of order, but through an authoritarian control, uh, your neighbor spying on neighbor, your secret police, you're ratting people out, dropping secret disappearances at night of anybody who questions because independent, godly reasoning, thinking, and questioning must be destroyed. And this is the real goal behind all the critical studies. It's to destroy liberty and, and, and by destroying liberty, it's to bring in principles that we face the image of God and man and cause us to be mindless, thoughtless, and you see it's really taking hold in our society today. People are losing the capacity for reason, for discourse, for problem solving, for examining things, for coming to conclusions. It's amazing. I see it all over the place. They look for authority figures to tell them the answer. Sad. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm skipping all over the place here. So let me go into, let's go into uh, Wednesday's lesson. We have a, maybe a minute or two left. And the lesson focuses on, if you love me, keep my commandments. Boy, you know, we could have a whole hour on that, couldn't we? You know, I, I think that should make that a part of all the weddings where, the, uh, where they say, if you love me, you obey all my rules. <laughs> no, that doesn't work. But it also works. You see, if you love somebody... Truly love them as God loves us. Will you lie about them? Will you steal from them? Will you cheat on them? Will you try to murder them? Will you even covet their success or will you celebrate when they success? Okay? So, so it is true that if you love him, you will keep his commandments because that's how love works. But you actually can't get love by making a list of rules that you tell people to obey or they'll be punished. If you begin to put pressure and coerce people to keep the rules as a measure of love, you actually destroy love. It violates the law of liberty. And so it depends on how you understand the commandments and law. If you understand them as Roman, as human, made up rules with external enforcement, then that destroys love and destroys the image of God in people. If you understand it as design law, the protocols upon which life are built, and you're left free to do it or not, and you reap what you sow, 
then as you begin to recognize the differences and outcomes that you get when you harmonize with God and his methods and principles versus when you break them, the pain and suffering you bring them, then you love him for all the work he's done to protect you. And so you look back on maybe some child times in your life and uh, like, like we do with our parents. And my mother had to discipline me from time to time in, in my growing up. You could imagine I was a little... Um, <laughs> little, I was a little bit uh, impulsive sometimes and saying things that probably shouldn't say, but, but a parent who tells their child, don't play in the street. And the child plays in the street and the parent disciplines the child. We, don't, we, don't, we look back on that today and say, thank you, mom, for loving me. Thank you, dad, for loving me enough to protect me when I didn't actually understand the laws of physics. I just thought it was a rule. I didn't know there was a reason. I didn't know I could actually get hurt. You protected me. Thanks for... for for not letting me smoke when I was a kid. Thanks for that. Yeah. And I only did it when I was a kid because I didn't want to get in trouble. I was afraid you was going to punish. But I realized today, the punishment wasn't going to come from you. The punishment was going to come from breaking the laws of health. As I destroy myself. Same with sin. Sin when full grown brings forth death. James 1. Those who sow to the carnal nature of that nature reap destruction. And therefore God disciplines those he loves to protect them until they can grow up and realize that everything he asks us to do is always for our best good and we love to do it. Oh, I saw a hand right there. Yes. Isn't one of the ultimate goals to destroy the Bible, to make the Bible illegal, one of the devil's ultimate goals? I can't jump on that as a conclusion. I have to process that because I think the Bible has been used in the hands of people who view God as a dictator, a Roman Caesar, a God whose law works like human law to great success through the years. And in fact, the beastly system of Revelation 13 during the Dark Ages um, espoused, even though they, re- they, they took it out of the hands of people, kept it in Latin, they still claimed their authority came from the Bible. Um, so true Bible knowledge and true Bible principles he wants to keep away from people. But I think he very much likes people to use the Bible. The, in, fact, it, in fact, if you were standing at the foot of the cross with the people who were jeering, mocking, and demanding Jesus' blood, and you look to the person next to him, Caiaphas, Annas, and these people, and you said to them, do you believe in the Bible? What would they have said? Do you want to, to, to teach the Bible, or do you want to hide the Bible from people? Okay. Do you believe in creation? Do you believe in the creator God? Do you believe in the Sabbath? Yeah. I mean, they believed it all. What they didn't believe was the, the truth about God's character, nor did they comprehend his design laws. They approached it very human government-wise, imperialistically, rules to be enforced, and this is why they accused him constantly of being a lawbreaker, because he didn't apply their rules. He applied the principles of God to bring healing to people. So, I, I, you know, I, I'll think about that. I think true biblical truth he wants out of the hearts of people, but I think the Bible has been used by, by Satan's agents, and I think he will have more Bible-pounding and Bible-thumping people using the Bible to do all kinds of evil, which misrepresents God. That's why there are 41,000 different sects of Christianity. Yeah, there are, there are 40, over 40,000 different Christian groups, yeah. I was thinking how they were able to get the Ten Commandments out of the courts. Ten Commandments used to be on the back behind the judge of, of all the courts, so, and they got that out. 
So yes, so what's happening in our society today, it's absolutely true. And I think you can see a historical relationship between the dark ages. Remember it says in, in Revelation that all the world is intoxicated on the wine of, of, the, of, the, of the, you know, the harlot, which is the, the false church. And the wine of the, of the harlot is this idea that God runs his universe like a Caesar runs Rome. He's the source of pain, the source of death, the source of punishment, the one we have to be afraid of, the one we need to be protected from, an arbitrary God who makes up rules and hurts you for it that destroys love. And so the whole world was intoxicated on that in two ways. They either believe it and then practice those methods on others and burn people at stake or crusades or, or whatever, or they reject the idea of God altogether because the God like that shouldn't be believed in and they teach godless evolutionism. In our societies, um, because of the... Let's walk through this. In the Dark Ages, if you believed the common worldview uh, of, of... the common biblical worldview taught out of Rome, life was r- irrational. It was superstitious. It was silly that your loved one is being tormented in a place called purgatory, but if you give a couple pieces of gold, then you can launch them into heaven. If you go off to a war to kill people, you can somehow be, go to heaven with a God who says, thou shalt not murder. I mean, it was irrational. You couldn't think. You couldn't reason. It was crazy. And, there, and, and, it, was, and it caused chaos. In people's lives, it was very inconsistent. There was no sense of freedom. People's characters were being stifled. Darkness covered the people, gross darkness people. And then what came along was the enlightenment. What was the enlightenment? It was a move away from this dark ages church of superstitious man-made rules claiming to be Jesus or, or the Bible, and it moved towards science and nature. And the laws of nature are God's laws. And they're predictable, and they're reliable, and they're testable. And it gave people a sense of control. It gave people a sense of confidence, a sense of predictability. And, and, and intelligent people were, were drawn to this. And they rejected the idea of God, and this whole theory of evolution came along. Okay, this is all Satan playing the big, the big strategy game on, on human minds. And the truth, of course, is, is neither one of those, the Dark Ages, punitive, arbitrary God, nor the godless theory. And what we're suffering in society today is the predictable outcome of what happens when you reject God. And the predictable outcome is that villainy, selfishness, corruption rises in hearts and minds and society decays. You get more disorder and chaos in the world, which is part of what Satan's goal is because the disorder and chaos, what I said a moment ago, causes people to feel anxious and fearful and they want order and they will welcome the beastly deliverer that comes with his authoritarian rule to make them feel safe and tell them what to think. And that's what the setup is happening. And, the, and all but the very elect are going to be deceived by this. And the very elect are those who understand God's true design laws and principles. Let's close with prayer and then we'll do our Q&A time. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you run your universe on truth, love, and liberty, and then you give us real freedom. And we pray now that your Holy Spirit will take the victory of Christ, reproduce it in us, establish your law, your seed in our hearts and minds that we can go on living victoriously, successfully, in harmony with your principles as we treat others as we would like to be treated. We know that in our own ability, we don't have the power The power comes from you. The truth comes from you. The transformation comes from you. And so we open our hearts in love and trust and ask for your abiding presence that we can live victoriously in this very, very critical time in in human history. And we pray that you will open more avenues for this true message of you to lighten minds and free so many who are caught in the middle and confused that they can see the reliability 
and the beauty of your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen.